informative evening. I hope you've come ready to be inspired tonight. Have you? Wonderful. That's good, because you're in the right place. I'm going to pray, and then it's my delight to introduce you to Matt in just a moment. But I want to pray and ask for God's help as mm, we yeah. listen to what's going to be shared tonight. I'm, I've come hungry to learn mm. tonight and to be equipped. So, uh, Father, we pray that in this place we would be led by your Spirit, uh, open-hearted, open, with open minds to hear and to learn and to be inspired. Uh, but, Lord, we also want to take away with us practical tools that we can yeah. use. And so I pray, Lord, that there'd be a real sense of equipping in this place tonight as you help us learn and uh, begin to apply tools that we can use uh, for your glory. Uh, Lord, we love you. We thank you that you've changed our lives. Yes. And we look forward to you changing more people's lives uh, around us and through us as we live to serve you. Mm. Amen. Amen. Should we put our hands together and welcome Matt? Great. Thank, thank you, you, Stuart. Brilliant. Well, good evening, everybody. It's so great to see so many of you. Thank you for coming out. I realize you could be at home watching EastEnders right now, and you have decided to be here. And so, so oh, is it, I thought it was half past seven on a Thursday. Has it changed? So, uh, but anyway, it's great to see you. Thank you so much for coming out. Uh, I was saying to some of the folks here, I think this is about my 18th, 19th one of these that I've done over the last 18 months, and I just love these evenings. Uh, and see what God uh, will do. Hopefully, you've all got one of our little lovely workbooks. And, uh, and I was just explaining, uh, when I did this series of seminars last year, and in the feedback, and I'll ask you to do some feedback right at the end of the evening, the one thing that pretty much everyone said is, we'd really like a little booklet to fill in and complete. And so it's there. Now, you don't have to use it. Do feel free, feel liberated if you want to fan yourself with it. Um, you know, use it to sleep late or whatever. But, but if it, I will refer to it so that if you want to follow the way through, then you can definitely do that. Um, but, uh, but don't feel under any obligation. But if it helps you, then kind of go for it. Um, but I do want to start here. I do want to start with this question, why am I here? And I don't mean this as some big existential question, why am I here? But actually, why are you here this evening? What was it about this title that intrigued you, that made you come out? And so what I'd like you to do in just a moment is turn to the person next to you and answer that question. Just tell them for 30 seconds why you're here. Now, let me just say this. I, like sure, I'm a pastor of a church, so I've, I'm blessed with two jobs. So two-thirds of my time, uh, for the last 18 years, in fact, I've worked for Urban Saints, but I'm six weeks from finishing. And, uh, and my third of the time as the senior pastor of Hitchin Christian Center from the 1st of July becomes full-time but I'll still be doing this about a day, two days a week uh, in itinerant ministry. And, um, and so I say to my church, you know, there's always that moment, is there, on a Sunday morning where the person at the front says, why don't you turn around and say hello to someone? And there's a bunch of people in the church who love that moment, and there's a bunch of people who just dread that moment. And so I'll say to you what I say to my church. Look, if you really don't want to talk to the people around you, okay, if you don't, and which is fine, absolutely fine, if you close your eyes, fold your arms, and hum very loudly, then they will know to leave you alone, just to leave you alone, okay? But if you, but if you, if you don't mind, for 30 seconds answering this question, why am I here, what was it about this evening that intrigued you, then just for 30 seconds, over to you, why don't you answer that question? Okay, over to you, go. Why are you here?
All right, okay. Well, hopefully, hopefully something around, if you saw the poster, something around these things were part of the reasons that you came this evening, because this is what we're going to look at this evening. And uh, we've got a bit of a game of two halves. And so in our first half, before we stop for a break, uh, we're going to look at the top three of these things. We're going to look at four, very briefly, four very powerful reasons why we should all want people to come to know Jesus. Because actually, unless we are agreed on that, then the rest of the evening is a waste of time. Unless we realize this is really, really important that people become followers of Jesus, then we're in trouble. So we're going to talk about that. And actually, if you are here tonight, I don't want to make an assumption that everyone here is a follower of Jesus. And, uh, and so I'm hoping as you listen to that bit, maybe tonight is the night where you want to say your first big yes to him. And I'll actually create an opportunity at the end of our first half for you to do that if you want to say yes to Jesus. And so four big reasons. And then we're going to look at three confidence-building activities uh, that will uh, help people get interested in faith, get them to the place where they might say, how do I become a Christian? And then we're going to look at these three simple phrases to explain what it means to be a Christian. And then we're going to pause, take a break, and, uh, and then when we come back, we'll look at four lifestyle challenges to make disciples who make disciples. So once someone's become a follower of Jesus, how do we then grow them in their faith? And then this one lifestyle challenge. Basically, uh, I was saying to Stuart, what I'm, what I'm hoping and praying this evening is that when every one of us leave this place, this is, this is the goal, okay? We'll see what happens in the next two hours. This is the goal, that when we leave this evening, every single one of us will want to lead someone to Jesus by the end of this year, that you will feel confident that you can do that, and that you would get, commit to give an hour of your week to what we're going to explore, particularly in the second half, knowing that if you do that, you will go on to change the lives of millions and millions of people if you would just give one hour a week to what I'm going to talk about in the second half. And I will tell you a story right at the end of the evening. If you hang on till 20 past nine, I'll tell you a story right at the end of the evening that will prove that your investment in what we're talking about will go on to affect the lives of millions of people. It's my favorite story. And I have told it probably hundreds of times now. And every time I, I tell it, it still gives me a goosebump. But that is for later on uh, this evening. So that's our, that's our basic plan. And so that's what we're going to be uh, doing throughout our time together. Now, I've worked, as I said, for Urban Saints for 18 years. But before I worked for Urban Saints, I worked for the mobile phone company that is now called EE, Everything Everywhere, used to be called T-Mobile. And when I was there, it was one-to-one. It had more name changes than Crusaders and Urban Saints. And... Um, and uh, when I was there throughout my 20s, the, the powers that be, the directors of this company, were very concerned about the level of motivation uh, in the, in the, right across the team. And so they, they ransacked the local Athena card store, and they bought all these motivational posters. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen kind of the, the thing I'm, I'm about to explain to you, but for example, you've got these massive posters and I remember there was one with someone, someone climbing a rock face, like a thousand feet up, and underneath was the word endurance. And I think the whole idea is, you know, you'd be walking down the corridor and you'd see this poster that said endurance, and you'd think, yes, I will endure my day at T-Mobile today. Or there was another one I remember with skydivers holding hands at 
20, you know, 10,000 feet, and underneath was the word teamwork. And you were like, yes, I will, I will operate in team. And literally, these posters were everywhere to try to create a motivational environment. They were, they were in the foyer. They were in the lifts. They were in the corridors. They were in the meeting rooms. They were in the offices. They even had some in the toilet, friends. And believe me, when you're going to the loo, you don't need a poster that says teamwork. Trust me. Like This is a, a one-person activity. I can cope with this by myself. So, um, so I want to start our evening by not sharing with you the motivational posters, but the demotivational posters, the, the, the posters that when you look at these things, you're just going to feel bad. Now, you might be thinking, Matt, why would you do that? Why would you start this evening by making us feel bad? Well, firstly, a little bit of reverse psychology. I kind of figure if I make you feel bad at the start, I am just going to get better after that, aren't I? You know, you'll be reflecting at the end of the evening, so wow, this guy was lame at the start, but he did get better. But actually, secondly, aside from the fact that this is a bit of fun, by the way, don't, please don't grab this and say, that is the Lord's word for me tonight. It isn't. It's a little bit of fun. Um, but actually, the very last one that we're going to look at, which I think is hilarious, um, is the very opposite of everything we're going to talk about. So that actually is a point. Shock. So here's the first one. Believe in yourself because the rest of us think you're an idiot. How nice is that? Or what about this one? Adventure. Keep living life like there's no tomorrow and you'll be right sooner than you think. It's a message to you risk takers out there. Defeat. For every winner, there are dozens of losers. Odds are you are one of those losers here this evening. Just feel the love in this place. What about this one? Perseverance. The courage to ignore the obvious wisdom of turning back. Some of you just need to learn, like, quit, give up. What are you doing? Or what about this one? Multitasking. The art of doing twice as much as you should, half as well as you could. Well, that's multitasker saying amen. How many of you are, are, raise your hand if you actually have people that you work with in team, like in your church. Is any, any team people here that you, you've got some people? There must be some. Okay. Okay. So this next one is for you. Okay. Team building. Sometimes the most important lesson you can learn is you're not a very good team. You're not like, what do you, do I give up? And, and then here's my favorite. Okay. Here's the final one. This one, mistakes. It could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to other people. <laughs> so people will look at your life and you're just like, look, whatever you do, don't be like me. Like, be the very opposite. Do the opposite of my life. And actually, what we're going to explore this evening is what it means to be a disciple is the exact opposite of this. That actually what we're hoping and praying for is that Jesus has so got a hold of us that people will look at us and say, I want what you have. I want to become, even dare I say, like you. Paul, Paul preaches boldly in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. He dares to say, follow me as I follow Christ. That Jesus has such got a hold of you that people will want what you have. That's what we're going to explore uh, this evening. And so we're going to think about, first of all, what do we even mean by this disciple thing? Now, if you want to follow along, we're on page six in your little books. Now, this word disciple uh, is the Greek word, and it's the little word that's missing here, mathetes, M-A-T-H-E-T-E-S, mathetes, math, M-A-T-H-E-T-E-S. Now, the interesting thing about this word disciple, mathetes, is it appears over 250 times in the New Testament, whereas the word Christian only appears three times. 
This word is really, really important. It's the word that Jesus uses in Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Go into all the world and make disciples, mathiti, sometimes translated learner, best translated apprentice. Are there any disciples of Jesus in the house this evening? Excellent. I'm a little bit Pentecostal, so now and again you need to speak back to me just to make sure that I'm doing okay, all right? So you can say, yes, Lord, hallelujah, or just help him, Jesus, help him, Jesus, if I'm not doing so well, all right? So, um, So if you are a disciple of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you said yes to Jesus... Then, then you are Jesus' apprentice. And, and what Jesus is wanting to apprentice in you is not stonemasonry or woodcraft. The, the goal of your apprenticeship, in fact, the goal of your life is to become like him. That's what it means to be a disciple. You are learning to be, say, and do life like Jesus. That's it. And, and in fact, the more you're like him, the more his mission will become your passion. And so it's a really, really good prayer to every morning wake up and say, God, would you fill me with your spirit afresh and help me to be more like Jesus today than I was yesterday? Would you flood my life with love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? Galatians 5, to 23, the fruits of the Spirit, the character of Christ. Would you flood my life? Would I become more like Jesus? My, my old mentor was a guy called Alex Buchanan. He's with Jesus now. And his life mission was to know Christ better than I do and be more like him than I am. It's a good goal. Wouldn't it be great if, if we were all together, if I didn't do too badly tonight and Stuart invited me back in a year's time and we were doing something else, that we could look at each other in the eye and say, I'm more like Jesus in 2019 than I was in 2018. I'm more loving, I'm more forgiving, I'm more generous, I'm more hope-filled, I'm, I'm kinder. The goodness of God is operating more in me. That's what it means to be a disciple. We are disciples of Jesus. We are Jesus' apprentices. Like, like Paul, uh, John writes in 1 John 2 verse 6, those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did, not in our own strength, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what it's about. Now, if you flip over to to page 9, let me just connect two scriptures, an Old Testament scripture and a New Testament scripture. Psalm 78, verses 4, 6, and 7. The psalmist writes, we will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord about his power and his mighty wonders, so that the next generation might know them, even the children not yet born, and they in turn will teach their children. Verse 7, I would say this is the dream, the longing, the vision of God for every generation, that every generation would set their hope on him, that they would know that Jesus is the answer. He is what our soul is longing for, not forgetting his glorious miracles. Secondly, And thirdly, obeying his commands. Jesus said numerous times, if you love me, you will obey me. You will do what I've said. But what I want you to notice about this verse, and there's lots that we could say about it, is the baton pass. I want you to notice that kind of multi-generational thing where the writer is saying, that which has passed to you, pass on to others, that will pass on to others, that will pass on to others. It's the same sentiment that the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.2. He's in a Roman prison cell. He knows his number's up. 
That mad Emperor Nero has got him imprisoned, and tradition tells us that maybe even months after writing this letter to Timothy, Paul was beheaded. So he knows this is it. Famous last words, important words. And what does Paul say? He says a similar thing. He says, you've heard me teach things that have been confirmed by many reliable witnesses. Now teach these truths to other trustworthy people who will be able to pass them on to others. Again, same thing. That which I've passed to you, pass on to others who will go on to do the same. And so the word that you're looking for at the top of page 9 is this. The essence of disciple making is reproduction. It's all about reproduction. And, and what we're exploring this evening and what I'm trying to do in my church is how do we change the culture of our churches so that they, they have a disciple-making reproductive culture? Because I would say there are three types of churches that I come across. And, uh, and we're sitting in the second type, and I'm longing that we would become like the third type. So type church number one. Someone comes to faith, let's say an Alpha course or a Sunday meeting or whatever, and we say to that person, it's great you've become a Christian, plug yourself into a small group maybe, come on a Sunday. Now that's good, but it's not disciple making. Now it's an element, there are elements of that, but that is not ultimately it. Most churches do that. Type two, someone becomes a Christian. So Stuart becomes a Christian in my church on the Alpha course. And so I, I grab John in my church. John's a Christian, and I say, Stuart's just become a Christian. Here's a new believer's pack. And so we have a new believer's pack, uh, which comes with a Bible and a little overview of the gospel. And then uh, myself and my spiritual director, Pete Gilbert, we co-wrote this book together, 42. And it's 42 days to get to grips with following Jesus and then pass it on. So it's 14 beings, knowing your identity in Christ, knowing God as Father, 14 doings, what do we do as followers of Jesus? Like, you know, reading the scriptures, praying, sharing our faith. And then 14 knowings, why is there suffering? What about hell? Is Jesus coming back? What about sexuality? All of those kind of things. And, and so what John will do is, is you try and read those every day, and, uh, and they'll build some devotional practices, and he will try and connect with you, meet with you, text you at least once a week to help you in that early part of your faith journey until you're in a place to get baptized, until you can self-feed and start to do this for yourself. Does that make sense? So, and that's where we're at, and that's good. But that's not what the psalmist is talking about. That's not what Paul is talking about. What, what Paul is saying, and what the psalmist is saying, is Stuart's just become a Christian. We give him the new believers pack. I get John to walk alongside him, and John's goal is not just to disciple Stuart, but to help Stuart reach and disciple someone else. We'll think about this more in the second half, but you can think about it this way. It's like John doesn't just want to be a spiritual dad to Stuart, he wants to be a spiritual granddad because he wants to see Stuart's faith reproduce in someone else. Am I making sense? So, so when we will get a revolution, revival, whatever you want to call it, is that when our culture in our churches has changed to such a degree that we have literally disciple-making disciples, that someone comes to faith, and right from the get-go, we're helping that person reproduce. Like, the, the law of mathematics and multiplication means it would be explosive. I mean, just think about it now. If, if everyone in this room led someone to Christ in the, in the next year and started to help that person reproduce. I guarantee you, if that starts to become normative in your churches, your church will explode in three to five years' time. It will just explode. That's the way it's supposed to work. 
And the, and the amazing thing here, is, which we'll think about a little bit in the second half, is small numbers make a massive difference. They really do. So the essence of disciple-making is reproduction. So, let's, so having set that as a bit of a scene, we all track it all right so far? Is everyone okay? Great. So, uh, so let's look at these four really important reasons. So this is uh, pages uh, 10 and 11. I'm going to go through this super, super quickly, okay? Because you know this. I'm just going to remind you, hopefully, why you are pleased you're a Christian today. And so reason number one is forgiveness. You and I both know, we all know, that everyone in, on planet Earth has the capacity for good, but also finds it really easy to do the wrong thing. We say, we do, and we think things that are destructive to ourselves, to our relationship, and to God's world. And, and as a result of that, I don't know a single person who has ever sailed through life without any sense of guilt and shame. Our culture says, if you feel guilt and shame, the way to overcome that guilt and shame is to embrace consumerism, because if you look different, if you buy some clothes, if you buy a car, if you buy a house, if you get loads and loads of money, then you'll feel much, much better about yourself. And nothing wrong in themselves, or, or nothing wrong in itself with those things, but actually that doesn't deal with the guilt and shame issue. What we all need is the slate wiped clean. We need a new chance in life. We need to be forgiven. And, and John, Jesus' disciples, makes this wonderful claim in 1 John 1, 9. He says, if we confess our sins, if we come to God and say, God, I am not all that I should be, then he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. And not just that, but cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want to remind you this morning, uh, this evening, if you are a follower of Jesus, I want to remind you, you're clean. You're clean. You are clean. Like the enemy wants to remind you and just say, you're not clean, you're messed up, and how can you call yourself a Christian? But like, if you are here this evening and you have said sorry to God, if you invited God's forgiveness, then you are clean. And if, and if you messed up on something a week ago and every morning you've got up and you said sorry again to God, I want to tell you that after you said sorry the first time, the other times God's saying, I don't know what you're talking about. Because far as the east is from the west, so he separates our sin from us. He, the psalmist says he puts our sins in the deepest ocean and erects a sign and says no fishing. And neither will he remember our sins anymore. Some of us, some of us need to hear tonight, you are forgiven. You need to hear it. And if he forgives you, then you can forgive yourself. So forgiveness, we all need it. The second thing is family. This, this wonderful family to belong to. Now, uh, now this, this is a shocking moment always in this evening because I need to tell you something that's true. And, and when I tell you this, like some people I find, they, they react really positive to what I'm about to say. Other people, not so positive. They're kind of more horrified. And so what I want to tell you is this, that if you would call yourself a Christian, if you would say, yes, I've said a big yes to Jesus, that I am part of the family of God, but please prepare yourself because I, I am your brother. Yeah, see, see, some of you are pleased. Some of that's nervous laugh. Some of you, some of you are like Luke Skywalker at the end of The Empire Strikes Back, where, where Darth Vader went, I am your father. And you're like, no, I'm afraid it's true. I am. We are the family of God. And the family of God is amazing. 
you know, I'm sure like, you know, in my role in Urban Saints over the years, I've spoken in many churches, both in this country, but other churches. I've been to Pakistan and been to a little church in the middle of nowhere where the welcome team, the host team there, had AK-47 machine guns. That was a different experience. Been all over the world, and there is nothing, friends, like the family of God. It's amazing. It's amazing, the family of God. And, and we are living in a world where people are longing to belong. They are longing to belong. You know, why are, you know, in my kind of generation, Friends and now Big Bang Theory and some of these big comedies, why are they so popular? Yes, they are funny, but actually all of those big comedies have a strong sense of community that people watch and they long for that. Wouldn't it be amazing if we were living in each other's pockets and, and had these kind of friendships? We are longing to belong. And, and, and so we're the ones that say, look, even if you don't believe what we believe, belong to the family of God, because this is a great place to be. Even though, if we're honest, we are pretty dysfunctional as well, aren't we? Let's be honest. Like, there's no perfect family. So family is the second reason. The third reason is freedom. That when we say yes to Jesus, something incredible happens. That the Holy Spirit starts to take up residence in our lives. And the scripture says, the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is in you. And so you can cooperate with that spirit and start to get free. Free from things, the, the lids that have been on your life, free from addictions, free from emotional stuff. We, we pray freedom over sickness. We pray freedom to break out over our lives. Freedom to become everything God created you to be. Freedom to play your part in his unfolding story. Freedom to join in with what God is doing in the world to usher in his new creation. Freedom to know that you are loved and accepted and that you serve him from a place of approval, not for his approval. Freedom. It's wonderful. You are free. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. People in this world need freedom. It's a good reason. And then the last reason, and you could think of many, see they've all begun with the letter F, my preaching dad would be so proud of me, is future. Like, I, I don't want to die, but I'm not afraid of dying. I'm not afraid of dying because, because there is this amazing promise in Scripture that tells me that death is not the end and that I'm not going to float on some disembodied cloud singing Shine Jesus Shine for a thousand years, as good as that song is. But I'm going to reign with Christ with a resurrection physical body in his brand new creation and every tear and every sickness and every cancer and every sin and every struggle will be gone once and for all and we will live with him and reign with him for all eternity and the breath of suffering and struggle that we endured in this life that's what the psalmist calls it our life is but a breath will seem nothing compared to eternity with the one who made us and loved us we are the one. I'm sure everyone in this room in some way or other has been touched by sadness and grief of loved ones lost. I'm a week away. Just literally, I was doing this seminar last week in Chorley, and I was reminding the folks how two years ago to the day was the day I got the text from Craig Bacon. We'd been praying for his daughter, Mary, who was 15 years old. And days earlier, she'd had a massive brain hemorrhage. And I was sitting in the church office, and I got this text that said, Mary just soared on the wings of eagles into her heavenly home. And I remember standing up and literally going, no, 
How could this beautiful 15-year-old girl who shone for Jesus in her school, like all of her mates knew, like how, where is the sense of that? And, and a week or so later, 400 people pack into our church that definitely doesn't seat more than 300. Loads of school friends, loads of teachers, and it was bittersweet as we celebrated this incredible life. And as Craig, her dad, stood up and, and told this amazing story of, of uh, Mary's life and, and, and the aching of their heart as they knew that she was no longer with them, as he tailed off at the end, he looked at us and he said this, but I have a steadfast hope that Mary is alive and one day I will embrace her again and tell her again how much I love her. And friends, he will. He will. And when he's done, I'm going to do that too. Friends and loved ones who've gone on before and we ache and we miss them, but they are alive. I told those 400 people, she is not dead. She is alive. This is our hope. We should long for this. For everyone, forgiveness, family, freedom, and future. So how do we do this? How do we bring people to Jesus? So page 13. So I want to talk about three things. And again, you're, you're going to know these things, but I'm hoping they're so simple they'll act as good reminders. And so the first is on page 13. The first is prayer. And the idea behind this is simply this. You know this. Before we bring God to people, we need to bring people to God. Before we bring God to people, we need people to God. We need to bring people to God. Now, at this point, this is that, this is that moment, let's be honest, where we're like, yeah, I know we should pray. Yeah, we should pray. We're Christians. We're supposed to pray. I want to tell you two stories that you will never forget that will remind you why it's so important to pray. And if you're like me, I've been following Jesus most of my life. I don't get prayer. I don't fully understand it. I don't know how it all works. But I know that Jesus says, do it and keep doing it. And I know that when I pray, things happen. And when I don't, they don't. So the first story, I'm in Northern Ireland a few years ago. I'm speaking at a youth event called Summer Madness. A couple of thousand young people there. And there's a whole bunch of us main stage speakers. There's a guy called Adrian. He's a retired teacher. And when he was speaking on one particular morning, he talks about how the fact he, he sometimes does some substitute teaching, uh, even in his retiring years. And so on this particular occasion, he was in a class for the first time, and he'd just been teaching them, and then he set them some work to do. So everyone, everyone's got their heads down, and they're getting on with work. And he starts to walk down the aisles. And at each aisle, he stops. And, and the students think he's just kind of looking at their work. But what he's doing is praying. And so as he stops, he's, he like, in his head, he's like, Lord, I, I pray for Stuart. I pray that Stuart would open his heart, open his mind. I pray that he would realize that you're knocking on the door of his life. And he got down about halfway down this class, and he started praying for this boy. I think, I can't remember the boy's name, about 15 years old. And as he prayed, he felt like God whispered back to him. Get this. He felt like God said, no one has ever mentioned this boy's name in my presence before. I want you to feel the weight of that just for a moment. Now, if you step back, now, of course, that makes sense. Now, you might say, yeah, but Romans 8 tells us that Jesus prays and the Holy Spirit intercedes. He does. But the scripture says that God's looking for someone on the earth, the connecting point. 
Like, this is a weighty responsibility, isn't it? Th this seems to mean, to me, and I, I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad or guilty, but there are people that if you don't pray for them, like, no one's going to pray for them. This matters, friends. It matters that we pray. It makes a difference. And a persevering prayer as well. D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist, he had a list of 100 people that he was praying for every day. And when D.L. Moody died, 96 of those people had become Christians, and the final four became Christians at his funeral. That's awesome, isn't it? The power of persevering prayer. Turn to uh, another time to Revelation 5, 8 or 18. It's on the bottom left of your Bibles, I'm sure, anyway. And, and, and it talks about how the prayers of the saints are like incense bowls before the throne of God. Now, it's a metaphor, but it's a powerful metaphor. Like some of you need to hear this tonight. Some of you have been praying into issues of sickness and struggle in your life. And you're living with how long? Like some like, how long, God? And you're wondering like, if those prayers have been wasted. But this wonderful passage in, in Revelation 5 tells you that every prayer counts. Every prayer is counted. Every tear is counted. It all makes a difference. There's a bowl in heaven with your name on. There's a bowl in heaven with that situation on. There's a bowl in heaven that has the name of that person you want to get saved. And every time you pray, it gets filled up. Maybe some bowls are bigger bowls than others, and you've got to pray hard and with more passion, more tears. Maybe some of those prayers will take days. Some of them will take months and years or even decades. But that bowl, I believe, by faith is being filled up. And one, at one point, I believe, that bowl will fill to overflowing from heaven to earth, and what we're praying for will break through. It's a beautiful picture of the power of persevering prayer. Some of you here, you've been praying for people for decades. Keep praying, keep pushing, keep believing. Jesus says, ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking because God's got good things. But there's a law woven into creation that we don't like, which is actually sometimes anything worth having takes time. My, uh, my spiritual director, Pete's got this great saying. He says that sometimes God takes years to do something in seconds. And you pray and you pray and pray. And then the breakthrough comes. Keep praying. First thing is prayer. Before we bring God to people, we need to bring people to God. The second thing then is care. The second thing is care. So I would encourage you on that first thing, like write down a list of people that you want to bring to God in prayer. Stick it on your fridge. Stick it on your mirror. Like set an alarm every day to go off at 3.17 p.m. So it's vibrating in your pocket and you just send, throw that arrow prayer to God. God, save Bob, save John, save my husband, save my son, save my work colleague. And as you do that, then you're saying, and God, would you show me how to care for them? Show me how to practically meet their needs. Because there's something really fascinating about the ministry of Jesus. Think about this for a second. If you were to tot up all the people who Jesus did a miracle, it's probably tens of thousands of people, isn't it? You know, particularly because, you know, he did lots with the feedings miracle. Thousands and thousands of people had an incredible miracle from Jesus. When Jesus died, how many of those people were following him? A tiny amount. Maybe at the most 500 Maybe if the 500 that Paul talks about in Corinthians were followers, or maybe they just saw him resurrected. Now that's interesting, because we believe that Jesus is God, so he knows all things. So Jesus was prepared to meet the real practical needs of a bunch of people, knowing that the majority of those people would take their miracle and clear off. 
which tells us that acts of compassion have intrinsic value in the kingdom of God. We don't just love people as a means to an end. We love them because it's right. Because we are the body of Christ, the physical body of Christ, who wake up every morning and don't just say, God, would you fill me with your spirit? Would you help me to be uh, more loving, joyful, all that kind of stuff? But we also say, Lord, whatever you're doing today, count me in. Those nudges that we were talking about. Nudge me. We're the ones who embrace, and none of us want to embrace this. Or maybe you do. You're a better person than I am. What, what I would call the ministry of interruptions. We've got, our, uh, we've got our agenda, our things that we want to do. Henri now and the Catholic priest went, once went to God in prayer and said, God, I'm trying to prepare sermons. I'm trying to do messages. And all the time, people are coming in and they're interrupting my ministry. And he felt like the Spirit whispered back, those interruptions are your ministry. Are you interruptible? Are you willing to break out of what you're doing because the Holy Spirit is saying, go and love that person, care for that person, meet that person's need. Would you love them as Jesus would love them? I remember a few years ago, the, um, every Easter, the churches of Hitchin do a march of witness. Do you do anything like that in Tunbridge Wells? And uh, it might be for the best that you don't because uh, this is like 500 fairly miserable-looking Christians on, on uh, Good Friday walking from one end to the other. Forgive me, forgive me, but they, we do look miserable. This Sunday, Pentecost party. It's awesome. Tell you about that in just a moment. And, and so we walk from one end of Hitchin High Street to the other. 500 church. It's great, though. It's a show of unity. That is really good. It's a straight line. And I was at the end with a lady called Stephanie who's from an Anglican church, and we, we watched... Uh, as we, we, we go from one end to the other, there's a market square, and then there's a short service for about 20 minutes. And we watched. And Stephanie drew my attention to it. I probably would have missed it. And we watched as 500 Christians all walked past Rebecca. Rebecca sells the big issue outside of Boots. And so on this day, where we are celebrating a God who is so generous that he even gave his very life. And not one single believer of Jesus even stopped to acknowledge she even existed. And I remember, and Stephanie said, she's a better woman than I am. She said, there is something wrong with this picture. And there is. Because the Jesus that we follow doesn't walk by. He doesn't. He stops. He doesn't walk by. The following year, we have a little 9 o'clock service before we join the March of Witches at half 10. I said to my church, if any of you guys are on the March of Witches, don't you dare walk past Rebecca. I'll be there with my heavenly Ofsted inspector little clipboard. I will be watching. Because we are the ones who stop like Jesus. And so as you write your list of people that you want to see come into the kingdom and you're asking the Holy Spirit, how do I love them? How do I care for them? How do I meet their needs? And... You embrace the ministry of interruptions where you're willing to say, whatever you're up to, God, count me in. That you're willing to be good news to someone, never knowing what really is ever going to happen after that little touch of heaven that you bring, but trusting that God used you in a moment to be part of his great divine plan to see someone saved. Prayer, care, and then the final one is share. See what I did there? It's, like, it's sheer poetry, isn't it? Let's face it, folks. My English teacher would be so proud. You see, this is the bit where we all freeze, let's be honest, because we love that quote from Francis of Assisi. Preach the gospel, and if you have to, use words. 
And all Christians go, thank goodness, because if there's one thing that's true, is that Christians and non-Christians have one thing in common. We all hate evangelism. Non-Christians hate receiving it, and Christians hate doing it. But Paul reminds us in this scripture here that you can read in Romans 10, how will people get saved unless we show them? No, unless someone tells them. Someone tells them. So this Sunday, the church is together in Hitchens. Every other year, it's brilliant. We do a Pentecost party. And, and there's a little service at half 11, and then from 12.15 to 3.30 p.m., we have face painting and hair braiding and a free barbecue and, and uh, inflatables and games and cake, and it's all free. And we say to the community, come, come, come. And there'll be anywhere between 500 and 1,000 people from the Hitchin area who will come and just enjoy this day. It's brilliant. And the majority of those people, friends, who come, they will get their face painted. They will grab a burger and they will clear off. And they'll think, that was really nice. But every year, some of them will stop and they will say, why? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Remember a bearded guy coming up to me with his big burger, quarter pounder, no economy burgers here, friends. And it's like, why are you giving me a free burger? What's all this about? Let me tell you what you must not do, first of all. What you must not do is this. Someone comes up to you, why are you giving me a free burger? Do not do this. <sighs> well, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky. And the pinnacle of his creation was Adam and Eve. And he was in perfect relationship with Adam and Eve. And it was absolutely wonderful. And then Satan rocked up to cause them to doubt that God was good. If you doubt that God is good, you would dislike him. And that would disobey him. And that would destroy his relationship. And so the whole relationship with the whole of creation of God was destroyed. But God was desperate to get his people back. So he grows up a guy called Abraham who had a son called uh, Isaac. had a son called Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. And he loved one son more than any of the others. He brought him a special coat. And all of his other brothers hated him. So they sold him into slavery. And he sang this song, I Close My Eyes. And, uh, and eventually, though, years and years Years later, his family came back and they were all restored and, and they were rescued from a famine. But 400 years after that, the Pharaoh at the time had forgotten all that and there were millions of them now and then they became slaves and they cried out to God. But God rose up another guy called Moses and, and eventually after 10 plagues, he led the people out of the, uh, into it towards the promised land and eventually they went into the promised land with a guy called Joshua and Caleb and there was this whole season of judges like Samson and Barak and Gideon and, and Deborah and they just kept falling away from God. But what they really wanted was kings. Everyone had a king. They wanted a king. Everyone had a king. They wanted a king. And so eventually God gave him the king that he wanted, which is a guy called Saul because he had and soldiers above the rest. He looked like the right king, but he wasn't a really good king at all. So eventually God gave him the king that they really needed, which was King David, who was a man after God's own heart. And even though he messed up, he really was a good king. And he loved God. But after David, there was a whole succession of kings, and most of them were absolutely terrible. And so throughout the whole of the rest of the story of the Old Testament, God is raising up prophets, men and women who are calling the people, come back to God, come back to God, but they just won't do it. So in the end, God decides himself to rock up, and Jesus Christ, God's only comes, comes to show us what God is really like, show us how to live a perfect human life, to die on a cross, offering future and forgiveness, and all of those kind of things. And he rises from the dead three days later so that we can be restored into relationship with God. And and then 40 days later, he goes back to heaven. And 10 days after that, the Holy Spirit comes and the early church is born. And for the last 2,000 years, the church has been seeking to see God's kingdom come and see God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven through all manner of different acts. And then one day Jesus will return. And when he returns, there will be a new creation. All those new and me part of his family and those that won't, won't. And you don't even want to talk about that. And that, my friends, is why I gave you a burger this afternoon. Now... very kind that you applauded but don't do that don't do that why did you give us this burger 
because I have discovered a God who is generous. And so we're learning to be generous too. See, here's a profound, simple truth that I've discovered, that people can disagree with your theology, but they can't disagree with your story. They can disagree with your doctrine, but they can't disagree with your story. What do you have that is uniquely you? It's your story. Every one of you in the room have a story about how God has broken into your life. You don't have all the answers. You're like, and I'm like a man who was blind, and Jesus heals him. And then this poor man is in the temple, and he's been besieged by questions. And he says, I don't have the answers to your questions. But this I do know. I once was blind, but now I see. I once was blind. Like, Jesus has made a difference. Rhetorical question. Like what, Jesus, what difference has Jesus made to your life? You see, the truth is this, friends. You know the answer to this question. Like, but if I was to ask you all, and I'm not going to, don't worry, I'm not going to ask anyone to do this, but if I was going to suddenly pick on one of you and say, right, stand up there, quickly tell us your story, most of us would freeze. But you know what I'm inviting you to do is take a little bit of time to think about it so that when you're asked, you're ready. Because you know. Every one of us has a story. We all do. Like, you know, I, I wasn't miraculously saved from sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I don't have one of those testimonies. But I do have some stories about how God has been good to me in the midst of pain and anguish and joy and celebration. I have stories that say God is good even when life is really, really hard. All of us have a story. And so again, I want to encourage you to intentionally take time out. Script it if you have to, but I'm not saying do that, to think about what would I say? If someone said, what is the difference that Jesus has made to your life? It's, it's the kind of question we ask when people get baptized, isn't it? You know, when, when we had our Easter Sunday baptisms and all these people out and said, what difference does it make? And, and because they knew I was going to ask that question, they prepared. They were ready. I know I'm never alone. I went through a tough patch and God gave me peace. God's given me confidence. I know God's healing me. The list goes on. Prayer, care, and share. So let's say we do all those things. And what we're praying for is that someone will get to a place where they say, I think I want this. I think I, think I, I, think I want this Jesus. Or, or even those rare moments, and may they come, when we have that little bit of boldness just to nudge someone after you've had that conversation to say, should we do this now? Should we do this now? So what do you say then? So... Um, how do we actually lead someone to Jesus? So, so last year, eight-year-old Jessica, it's the end of the service, and she comes up to me, and she pulls me on the trousers, and she goes, Matt, Matt. So I kneel down, which I won't do now, because I've got a dodgy knee. I said, what, Jess? So I've known her since she was a baby. She was the best man at her dad's wedding. She says, one of my friends at school wants to become a Christian. I said, that's brilliant, Jess. 
She says, yeah, but I don't know what to tell them. So I will tell you what I told Jess. And so if it works for an eight-year-old, hopefully it'll work for us. Okay? Just trying to make this as simple as possible. So I said, Jess, do you know, Christians basically every day live with three phrases. They say these phrases the very first time they invited Jesus to be part of their life. And in truth, whether intentionally or unintentionally, they're living with these phrases every day until they see Jesus. And the three phrases, and by the way, we're on page 16 here. And you know this. Phrase number one, sorry. Sorry. God, what was I thinking that I thought I could do a better job at leading my life than you? You made me. I'm sorry that I have said things and I've done things and I've thought things that I know have damaged me and they've damaged other people and it's been a barrier between you. I, I am sorry. I said sorry this morning. I say sorry most mornings. Am I in good company? <laughs> we are the ones that say sorry. And then what do we say? We say, but thank you. Thank you that despite my faults and failings and mistakes, you love me. And you love me so much, Jesus, that you died on the cross for me. Thank you that you rose again to pay the price so that I could be free and forgiven. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We say sorry, we say thank you. And then we say, help. So would you help me? today to become more like Jesus, to get free from the things that bind me and hold me back, to live more for you and like you, to join in what you're doing. Would you help me? I mean, that's, that's simple, but that, isn't that it? Aren't we the ones who, sorry God, but thank you and help, isn't that it? And you can fill in the blanks. And again, I would encourage you. I'm, I'm not asking you to write a pat prayer. Not, you know, do it if you want to. But remember those three phrases. So I think that's what it means to live for Jesus. God, we are sorry, but we do thank you. And so would you help us? We humbly come to him every day. It's positioning ourselves, surrender. We surrender every day. And so um, we're going to take a break in just a moment, but, but we're going to pray. And uh, so I'm going to invite you, once you've finished writing those bits, to put all your notes down just for a second, just for a couple of minutes. And we encourage you again, if you feel able to do this, just to close your eyes. Because we want to have a moment with God. We know God is here by his spirit. And I trust God. I don't trust myself, but I trust him that in this 45 or so minutes we've had, I'm trusting that he has said something to each of us. Maybe you've been beating yourself up. And the Father is saying, you are forgiven. 
Maybe you're battling with anxiety. And in this moment, God wants to saturate you with peace. Breathe, breathe out and breathe in his peace and grace. Maybe it's a prayer for boldness. Holy Spirit, help me do this. Or maybe you're here this evening and you've never said that big yes to Jesus. And in a moment, if that is you particularly, we're going to have a pause moment so that we allow ourselves to connect with God for ourselves before I pray. But in a moment, if that is you, after we have a moment of silence, I'm going to invite you, if you want to say a, a proper yes to surrender to Jesus, your first proper sorry, thank you and help, in a moment, I'm going to ask you, you can open your eyes and you can look at me, you can raise your hand, and then I'll, I will pray. I'm not going to do anything weird, but I'll be thinking of you as I pray. And then as we come to a break in a moment, if you want to receive Jesus and you're doing that, I'm going to invite you to come forward and the team here will pray for you. So we're just going to take 30 seconds. What's God saying to you in these 30 seconds? Even in, in these moments, just receive what we need from you. Refreshing from heaven. Thank you, Father. Say yes to Jesus. Is there anyone here? Just Would you show me now, just before I properly pray? So I read a book a couple of uh, years ago called Where Are All the Fathers by Duncan Watkinson. And uh, there are a couple of quotes that he, that he shared that kind of literally, I don't know if you've ever read something and it kind of jumps off the page and it just hits you and you're like, oh, that hurts. And so this was one of them. He said, the church is good at building orphanages, but weak at reproducing family. And he goes on in that paragraph to say, too many Christians are born again into an orphanage when they should be born again into a family. And, and that's what I began to talk about in, in our, the beginning of the first half. That ultimately, what we are inviting people into, in their relationship with God, is into the family of God. And, and so, I want to encourage you to really think about, what does it mean to be the family of God? Um, I, I, I was doing a, a seminar in a church last year, youth ministry seminar, and uh, it was just a little 10-minute seminar. I was being a little bit provocative. And uh, the title of my seminar was Ditch Your Youth Group, Start a Family. Because I think there's a mindset shift. Got to be careful how I say that. A mindset shift that if we really started to think we are first and foremost a family who live the one another's of the New Testament, then that's the kind of place people are going to want to belong to. And, and so when we think about being a f the family of God, the first thing, there are f there are, I guess there are four parts to this. Part number one, your identity and my identity, this is a little bit extra stuff, it's not in the book. Your identity is that you are a son and daughter of God. That is who you are, and that is whose you are. 
If you said yes to Jesus, then you know, you're not what you look like. You're not how much money you have. You're not what the advertisers say. You are the son of God. You are a daughter of God. You are the beloved. And nothing can change that. And nothing can separate you from the love of God. That's worth saying thank you, Jesus. Mildly, just quietly under your breath. Now, if you are a son and daughter, if that is true, then the second thing is true, which I said to you as well. That means that you are also brothers and sisters. We are brothers and sisters. Those, like, you, you can't have one without the other. If you're a son and daughter, then we're brothers and sisters. But then there are choices about whether we will become mums and dads and grandparents. So if you said to yes to Jesus, you cannot help but be a son and daughter. And you can't help but be a uh, brother or sister. But it's up to you whether you choose to be a mum and a dad and, a, and, a, and a ultimately a grandparent. And it's kind of out of this, this whole live life one, two, three thing came about. And it's this, you flick a little bit further on actually in the book and you'll see the live life one, two, three stuff. And, uh, and I was thinking about like, how can we see the culture of disciple making change in the church? And I'd read a book called The Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. And one of the things he talked about, the things that create movements, is a really simple idea that anyone can get. And I'm quite, as you've already tell, I'm quite a simple person. And, uh, and so the whole idea of Live Life 1, 2, 3 is essentially saying, number one, have you got someone that you're learning from? So who's discipling you? Um, Alex Buchanan, he was 64 years old when he first started discipling me in the year 2000. And I remember walking into his office and there was a learner driver plate on his wall. And I said to him, like, what's that? And he said, it's to remind me every day I've got to keep learning. 64 years old, got to keep learning, got to keep learning. Learning from other people, always looking for someone to learn from. Who are you learning from? So I have Pete Gilbert, literally next week, I'll fly to Inverness. Three times a year, I spend 24 hours with Pete. Uh, he reads my journals. He knows everything about me. He could ruin me. And, uh, and he's my spiritual dad. I've got a real dad who's also a spiritual dad to me, and I'm very blessed. But, but Pete is also like a spiritual dad to me. So who are you learning from? Who do you then, secondly, do life with? Who are the couple of people, at least, that you're getting together with some regularity to embrace what Jesus' stepbrother, James, talks about in James 5.16? Revolutionary words. He says, confess your sins to one another that you might be healed. Amazing. Not just to God, but also to one another. Because we need to be known and loved, accepted, challenged, inspired, advised, accountable to other people. So I meet with Phil and John about once a month. Um, one lives in Folkestone, the other lives in Hearn Bay, and we kind of gather. And again, we know everything about each other. Like, Secret Sin City is out there. You know, beyond this, because the challenge is, if we're really honest, if there's so much superficiality within our churches, okay? And, and again, I'm not being critical, like, there's context is everything, isn't it? You know, and, 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 and so, you know, you, we've all been in the small group settings where it gets to the end of the meeting and we say, you know, what should we pray for? And someone says, can you pray for my athlete's foot or my auntie Marjorie's dog or, you know, my, you know all those things. And, and actually, those things are fair enough. But those aren't the things that the writer to Hebrews was talking about in Hebrews 12, that the things that really are hindering us in going in with God. That, that's our crippling self-esteem issue. 
That's our pornography addiction. Like that's our, our battle with anger or unforgiveness or revenge. Those are the things that the enemy's got his claws in us and that God wants to bring freedom into your life, but you cannot do that by yourself. And I want to even dare to suggest you cannot even do that just you and God. And, and, if you, and if you would argue with that, then you have to go to Genesis 2.18 because the very first not good in the Bible is it's not good that what? Man is alone. He's like, he's not alone. He's got God. We sing songs. You're all I need. You're everything I need. And I would suggest that God was saying, no, that's actually not right. Because if that was right, then God would no, need no reason to create Eve, who is a helper, not as in someone who comes along and does the dishes and the ironing for Adam, but someone who literally comes alongside Adam to help him become everything that God created him to be. Eve was supposed to be this for Adam. Adam was supposed to be this for Eve. And throughout the whole of the, the, the Old Testament, that word, helpmate, Azar, is used to describe what God is like with us more than anything else. We need helpmates, whether they're married or friends or whatever. We need people who come alongside us where we can say, this is me, what's all, this is the mess, and they love you, they accept you, they challenge you, they pray for you, and they keep you accountable for change. And I would suggest that you will never reach your full potential in Christ without that learning relationship and that do-life relationship. Now, there's a challenge here, but because, because in the culture of our churches, including my church, like, we've not done this disciple-making thing. So when I talk about this, even in my church, people are like, I need to find a one. I can't find a one. And there hardly are any ones in the church because no one's ever been discipled, so they don't know how to do it. And so, so what I say is find those twos. Find a couple of friends, and once a month, try to hang together, start to learn to love each other, trust each other, be real with each other, and then you can be like ones and twos for each other. You can do both. And then... Commit to lead, the threes, other people into relationship with Jesus, which is what we're talking about. Now, if we all started to do that, we're learning from people, we're doing life with people, we're leading people into relationship with Christ and helping them do the same, then in 10 years' time, our church will be full of ones. Full of ones. Because you're going to be the pioneers of the cultural change that will have loads and loads of ones. But someone's got to do it, and it may as well be you. It may as well be you. So live life one, two, three. And at the end of the day, the numbers don't really matter. But the question is this. Who are you learning from? Who are you doing life with? And who are you leading? Who are you leading into relationship with God? So, so let's land this. How do, how do we really start to do this stuff? And so um, we are now tracking onto page 80. These four things that I want to talk to you about, about how we how we grow disciples. So the first is this. The first is radar. That's the word that you're looking for there, radar. And, and as it says there, the whole point of radar is you can't disciple everyone, but you can disciple someone. So the question is who? Who do you do this with? And so at the risk of causing a little bit of controversy and heresy at nearly 9 o'clock to make sure we're awake, I want to suggest that Jesus has favorites. And before you take me to Romans 12 and say, it says in Romans 12 that God doesn't have any favorites. And of course he doesn't. He loves us all the same. And yet, in Mark chapter 3 and in Luke chapter 5 or 6, 6, we're told a story. And in the story, Jesus has spent the day talking to thousands of people. And then he dismisses a whole bunch of them 
But he invites a whole bunch of them, not thousands, but more than 12, to come with him and wait at the bottom of a mountain. Then Jesus goes up that mountain and he prays all night. You go and check me on this later. And he comes down to that crowd and then he chooses 12 apostles. And then within the 12, he has a special and closer relationship with three, which is Peter, James, and John. And I would encourage you, I'm not going to do this for time now, to look at how Jesus treats Peter, James, and John compared to all of the other disciples and, and the three experiences that the other disciples have with Jesus, uh, that Peter and James and John have with Jesus that none of the other disciples have. Jesus invests a disproportionate amount of his time, love, energy, and even challenge and rebuke on those guys so that when you flip to Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5, who starts the church? Peter, James, and John. Because you see, there is a, there's a guiding divine principle here that redefining big in the kingdom of God, big is small. And the smaller you invest, the smaller number of people you invest your life in, the disproportionate impact your investment will have. So listen, I'm loving this evening. You're, you're a great group of people. It feels like God's here. God's doing some stuff. It's great. You know, I, you know I'm, I'm sure I'll connect with some of you again uh, you know, in future. But, but one of the reasons, like I was doing this in Chorley, literally, as I said, last Tuesday, I was in Chorley, and at the end of it, this, this, this lovely lady came up to me, and she said to me, Matt, what, like, why are you giving up this big national role with Urban Saints to go small in the local church? And I was saying, because if I am pouring my life into this group of people in my church, then I will make a massive impact in their lives by doing life together over decades and decades, much more than this fleeting little two hours that I spent with you. Like, small is beautiful. Like Will, Josh, and Teo, who I, you know, who I spent most weeks with over six years throughout their teenage years. They're now at university, and my discipling relationship with them is primarily WhatsApp on a Friday. But pouring my life into these guys, loving them like a pseudo-spiritual dad. Massive impact I've had on their life by God's grace. Much more than I will on any of you. Because the smaller you go, the bigger the impact that you have. That's the way that it works. So the question is, you can't disciple everyone, but you can disciple like at least one person. And so just notice how Jesus does this. You know, you hold the old adage, uh, those who fail to plan, plan to fail. So what do we notice in Jesus in these, these words here, 18 plan? So he prays. He's like, God, I can't do this for everyone. Like, who do you want me to disciple? Who do you, who do you want me to, to spend an hour or so a week investing some time in? And then what is it, the next thing he does? He looks. He looks. So when Will, Josh, and Tao went to university, well, I started looking. I started praying. So, okay, God, they've gone off. I'm going to keep in touch with them through the wonders of technology. But I need, I need some more sons. Like, like, who do I do this with? And so about a month ago, I just started to meet regularly with Theo Garrell, who's 13 years old. Like, committed to spend time in him. And I've got about two other guys who are on my radar, speaking to their parents. And like, when I started with Will, Josh, and Teo, two of them were Christians, but baby Christians, and one of them wasn't. And so different stages, kind of faith, but just wanted to pour my life into them. So pray, look. The A is ask. Hey, I see something in you. You know, I'd love to hang out. I'd love to encourage you in faith and life. You know, let's, let's get together. Would you be up for that? And the end, by the way, is never give up. Because sometimes people say no. They do. 
And let me be really clear, as we get into this stuff, and it's tough, this stuff's not easy, like, making disciples is hard. Like, Jesus' disciples drove him nuts. They, I mean, they really, really did. And so if Jesus' disciple drove his nuts, don't think you'll get an, e you know, get an easy ride. I, I would say, like, four out of five times, I would wake up on the day that I was going to be seeing Will, Joss, and Tao, and I'd be like, oh, God. <laughs> like, you know, four steps forward and ten steps back. And then they just have these amazing divine moments when something was said or happened. I was like, oh, they're getting it. And, and I'm, a, I'm an ENTJ on the Myers-Briggs. I'm a goal-oriented leader. So I was very clear about where they should be as far as I was concerned in their walk with God by the time they went to university. And they were nowhere near that. And I would kind of feel, oh, really, really frustrated. And I remember hearing uh, a guy called Andrew Marr speak. And, uh, and, and he just talked about never forget the gift of presence. Just being present. The crazy thing is those guys for nearly six years did want to hang out together and do life together and chat together, pray together, laugh together, cry together for six years. And just about, they're all going on with Jesus. Just about. Who knows? Fragile. Pray, look, ask. You've got to have a radar. Never give up. The next thing is, the, I said these get harder, is, is then time, the challenge of time. Because even within my church, within my youth group, and I talk about this and just say, you know, come on, guys, aside from, like, say, for our youth workers, aside from our youth program, like, we need to get alongside these young people and hang out and invest in them. And, uh, or, you know, I'm saying to my congregation, one hour a week, if I one hour a week just to invest in someone, help them, cheer them on in faith. And, uh, and then most people say this. That sounds great, but I'm too busy. So the pastoral side of me goes, look, I really appreciate all the stuff you're doing in the church, and I really appreciate that life is full and that you're busy. I do. Hear me, I do. Unfortunately, like that is 10% of me, the pastoral side of me, because 90% of me is an evangelist. And, and then I would say, look, you don't have to be a prophet to know. If you are too busy to find one hour a week to cheer someone on in faith, then you're too busy. And the reason for that is this, something that the Lord said to me a little while ago. The only thing you can take to heaven with you is people. So the question is, it's unnerving, does my diary reflect that? So if heaven peered over, because I seem to be able to make time for binging on Netflix series, or whatever your thing is, Facebook, reading books, whatever. It's amazing what we manage to find the time for. But can we not find an hour a week to cheer someone on in faith? I want to encourage you to step back, look at your diaries, look at your rhythm of life, and think about how could I intentionally carve out some time to be with someone on a regular basis. Hour a week is great. I think if you aim to do it monthly, then it will be every other month. With Will, Josh, and Taylor, we aimed every week, and usually it was at least twice a month. But coming alongside each other, spending time together. I love these words from Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2a. He says, essentially, we loved you so much, we didn't just give you the gospel, but we gave you our lives. And one of the things that I've learned, both uh, from a youth ministry point of view and just generally, is this is not always, in fact, most of the time, this is not about special times and places. 
This is about involving people in your life. So I, like, again, I don't need to be a prophet to know that most of you eat. All of you eat. You sit down. You have a meal. And so why not invite someone over to be part of that meal with you and just talk about faith and life while you're eating? Now, I, I'm aware, by the way, that some of you like, love the whole idea. Like some of you, you know, you, you hear on leadership that there are task-oriented people and people-oriented people. You've heard, kind of heard that? You know, so you people-oriented people, you're saying like, Matt, can I just spend all my life in coffee shops talking to people? This is amazing. I've wanted to be liberated. If you're like me, a task-oriented people, you're like, oh, people always get in the way of the task. And so you've got to do what I had to train myself to do is, is rethink that the most important task of all is investing my life in people. That's the, you know, it's wearing, it's hard, it's tough, but it's the most important thing because it's the only internal investment I'll ever make. So radar, time. And so the question, let's say that you've, you've got someone, they've agreed to spend some time with you, and uh, then the big question is, like, what do we do? We're in, we're in a coffee shop, we're at home having a meal, and we're just looking into each other's eyes, and it's awkward. What do we do? So at this point, I want to talk about this lovely, rich uh, Hebrew word, shalom, which, as you know, is, is the word for peace. But not at peace as in the absence of strife, but that wonderful sense of well-being, thriving, flourishing. Like the hymn writer says, whatever's going on in your world, that you can say, it is well with my soul. That's what shalom is. When I grew up, some of you have been Christians for a long time, you'll, you'll totally get this. When I was a teenager, I would go to evangelistic gospel meetings. And the evangelists would stand up the front and they would preach the gospel. And at the end of it, then they would always ask a question that went something like this. If you were to leave this place tonight and you were to be knocked down and killed by a bus, where would you spend eternity? Just wave your hand if you've heard those kind of questions and stuff. Yeah, more than half of us. Now, listen, as a teenager, this would terrify me. I used to think there was a demonic bus driver who was literally round the corner from a Christian meeting, revving his engine, ready to take out a few young people who were stupid enough to reject Jesus. But then I searched the scripture for myself, and then I discovered this. Now, let me finish before you call me heretic. That Jesus is not selling tickets to heaven. That is not the gospel. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus says, my favorite thing that he says, of all the favorite things that he says, he says, I have come that you will have what? Life and life in all its fullness. And when he said that, he wasn't just talking about pie in the sky when you die. He was talking about cake on a plate while you wait. Jesus is good news for you, not just in eternity. He is good news for you right here, right now, in every single part of your life. He's good news in your relationships. He's good news in your finances. He's good news in your workplace. He's good news in your emotions. He's good news to your physical body. He's good news in your missional life. He's good news for your choices. He is good news for everything, and that's what Shalom is all about. So the question is, so what do we talk about? What, what, how are we discipling? We're talking about everything, friends. Because everything matters to God. Right, right at the very end of this, on page 27, you'll see seven growth questions that I wrote. Kind of that it encompasses these seven areas of shalom. Seven things on a regular basis that you could ask people about physically what are you doing to cultivate good physical health let me be honest like I spent more time talking about sleep with Will Josh and Tao than anything else seriously 
And, and, and again, I don't need to be a prophet to say there are some of you here this evening and the best thing you can do for your relationship with God is sleep well, is get a good night's sleep. I pray the gift of sleep over you right now in Jesus' name if you're struggling to sleep. Because if you're not sleeping well, you know it affects everything. It does. Like I, got, I was in York speaking last night. I got home at half one in the morning and uh, put my light out at two, and then I had to be up at six to get down to London. I felt tired. I still feel tired. But like, I've had quite a lot of coffee, so I'm pretty wired as well. Holy Spirit wired, hopefully. But I, but I know I can't. Like, it's mad. Can't live like that. Sleep, the gift of sleep. So we talk about everything. Everything matters to God. What's going on in your emotional life, your relationship? Let's bring some scripture. Let's pray into this. Let's, let's think. And, and then you get this. This is the, the, the grow model. This is a helpful little model that you can, you can see on page 19, um, which is a helpful tool, mentoring tool, that you can use to help people make goals and make progress. So, so for example, let me, let me give an example uh, of what I've done. I've, in fact, I've done this with the whole of my church, but I've, but I've done this in a discipling context. So let's say... I ask a question. This is a good question to ask someone. What are you doing with what God is saying? That's one of the spiritual questions. Not have you read the Bible recently. What are you doing with what God is saying? So let's say Teo says, God's not saying anything. So I say, well, that's interesting. How are you creating opportunities for God to speak? How does God speak? Well, he speaks through the word. Do, have you in, read your Bible recently? I vaguely remember that there's a Bible in our house. So... Do you want to see that change? Be good, wouldn't it? Because Jesus said, he didn't say the truth will set you free. He said you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Applied truth brings freedom. So, so let's have a goal. What's the goal? The goal is we, I want to get, not religiously, not ritualistically, I want to get in the habit of every day having some time with Jesus. Prayer and in the word. That's the goal. What's the reality? There's a Bible somewhere in my house. That's the reality. So, oh, what, what are some of the options around that? Okay, we could get a daily Bible reading thing through the Bible in a year. We could download an app. We could do you version. We could listen to it online. A whole bunch of different options. Okay, what's the way forward? What, what are you going to go for? Taylor's like, okay, I'm going to 30 minutes a day. going to be in the Word. I'm gonna, what, he's, he's doing nothing at the moment. How realistic is that, Tao? Like on a scale of 1 to 10, realistically, how committed are you to do that? Six. Okay, let's, let's make it smaller so that you can make that a ten. So I taught him, which I taught my whole church this in January, something called one, one, one. Now, I'm sure all of you are way beyond this. Maybe you'll be thinking like, Matt, we're going to pray for your church as a result of this. Okay, but I would say the majority of people in my church do not have daily devotional intimacy with Jesus, which is a challenge because Jesus says that's kind of what you need. Intimacy becomes before activity. It's in intimacy you get your marching orders to make sure the activity you do is fruitful. Jesus always spends time with the Father, and that's why he says in John's Gospel three times, I only do what I see the Father doing here, say what the Father says. So it's in the intimacy place. One, one, one. Get your mobile phone app. I said, you don't have to do this now. Set a timer for 60 seconds. Now read some scripture for 60 seconds. That's it. That's all you've got to do, 60 seconds. If you don't know where to read, start in Mark's Gospel or Psalm. 60 seconds. When your timer goes off, beep, it'll go off really quickly. One minute's not very long at all. And uh, you are free to stop. You can keep reading if you want to, but you're free to stop. 
Reset the timer, another 60 seconds. Now, just pause. If you, if you want to close your eyes, you can. If you want to look at what you've just read, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? What are you saying? Timer goes off, 60 seconds. Now, reset, 60 seconds, now pray. Three minutes. One, one, one. Three minutes a day. Please don't tell me you can't find three minutes. Three minutes a day. And, and, and do that. Do that. Get into the habit so it becomes like as normal as brushing your teeth. I, I don't think there's anyone in the room who doesn't brush their teeth in the morning. You're going to be breathing over each other later just to see if that's it. We will do. Because, you see, see you, you embrace what I call training, not trying. You, you, you evoked enough discipline to create a habit, and that habit now is part of your lifestyle. So we're not, tra- we're not trying to embrace intimacy. We are training to embrace intimacy. And, and so, so every day, three minutes a day, it just becomes normal. I can't, you know, it's just what I do. I brush my teeth, spend a bit of time in the Word. That's what I do. I expect God to speak. Does he speak every day? No. Probably I'm just not listening very well. Whacks in the ears. But after you do that for six or seven weeks and, and, and one, one, one becomes normal, guess what you do? You stretch yourself. It becomes two, two, two. And three, three, three. You keep stretching. You keep stretching. And you find out God is speaking because you're growing and you're learning how to do this. So that's one example. But I hope that example helps you as we, as we learn to grow in intimacy with the Father in terms of how we spend time with him. So radar. Can't disciple everyone but uh, can disciple someone. So we pray, we look, we ask, and then we never give up. And then we create the time. And then we're thinking of like, bringing scripture to bear. And if you go to the Live Life 123 website and other uh, stuff, you know, there are video clips that I've done. Sometimes you can just show someone a clip and they, well, let's talk about this. Or here's a verse of scripture, let's open this up, whatever, and use the GROW model. But the last thing is about mission. And the words that you're looking for, it says remember, is, is simply this. You grow as you go. That's where, inappropriate phrase, by the way, but that's where the magic happens. So I've, you know, in truth, I remember sitting on the windowsill at my mum and dad's house uh, when I was, I don't know, five years old, six years old, and inviting Jesus to be a part of my life. But I look back on that now, and to be honest, I don't think Jesus was never part of my life. I've always believed in him. I just grew up in this Christian home. I always believed in him. But my faith revolution happened at the age of 17. Because 30 years ago to last October, Alan and Debbie were starting this brand new youth outreach. And they were like, you know, we're not reaching the kids outside of the community, so we're going to launch this brand new outreach. And it's going to be really cool, they said. We're going to have BBC microcomputers with graphics. We will show video clips on Betamax players. Like, this is going to be the height. You know, sometimes I tell this story to young people. They look at me like I'm speaking in tongues. And they, they're like, what is Betamax? Oh, I, I, the Lord say unto you. No, no, it's Betamax. And, uh, and, so they, and they said, Matt, we see leadership in you, so we'd love you to be a leader. And in truth, like, I was a PK preacher's kid. Maybe they asked me for that reason. They didn't do a big character check on me, but I just felt flattered. I didn't pray about it or anything like that. I was just like, yes, clearly you need me, you know. So I said, yeah. And a month in, God wrecked me. I was 17 years old with this 11 to 14 group. And I was dealing with young people who were abused, who were running away, who were drunk, who were messed up in so many different ways. And it 
It drove me to my knees in prayer and tears. I realized that if I was going to teach the Bible, I probably ought to read it. And my revolution happened because I went from a spectating faith to a participating faith. And so when you look at the Gospels and the ministry of Jesus, yes, there are those moments when he teaches his disciples. But what's the main way he teaches them? He gets them on with it. Get on with it. Heal the sick, preach the gospel, reach the poor, get on with it. You know, I, 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 don't, I think that eight-year-olds are too young to do marriage counseling. I don't think they have the requisite skills to be able to pass on that stuff. But I honestly think they can do anything else. And like, you know, one of the goals that I've got as I go full-time is like, in the next two or three years, we want to see like 80 to 90% of everyone over the age of eight years old serving in the house, committed to making a difference in the house as a start but then really serving in their classrooms and corridors. Like that's where we really want to see it happen. So that they feel that they own the house and that you know, this is my family, this is my house, so we all have to play a part. But it really is the equipping station and feeding station for what I do in the world. You grow as you go. And including non-Christians, like, so like we run Urban Saints, we run this house building stuff in Tijuana, Mexico and Botling Township in South Africa. And every year, hundreds of young people come on these house-building trips. We've been doing them since 2010. And there's a real mix, always, of Christians and non-Christians. And every year, loads and loads of non-Christians get saved. They get saved in the going. They get saved as they work with the poor. They get saved as they come alongside people. They get saved as they see people being healed on the streets. They get saved because they cannot deny that God has chosen them in their brokenness to bring kingdom difference to the world. Get lost people stuck into the mission of God. Let the revolution happen. You know, bring people along with whatever you're doing. You know, when, when we started out um, uh, in, in our... We started doing these trips. 2011, we took Bonnie Barber. And Bonnie was in our youth group for about four or five years. And, uh, and then she got too old, but she never became a Christian. But lovely girl. And I've kept in touch with her, like I try to do with lots of our young people who leave and go off in other places. So over the years, like Christmas events and other things, saying, Bonnie, like, why don't you come to our Christmas special or all that kind of stuff? And she'd always say no. And Bonnie, why don't you come to our Christmas special? Anyway, last... Christmas, she came to a Christmas event that we ran. And, uh, and then she came to Alpha. And now she's coming to Moldova this summer to help us build a house. And now she's on our host team. Like, is she a Christian yet? No, but she is in trouble. <laughs> Jesus is pursuing her. And the truth is, she can't get enough of church. She loves it. She loves it. And, and I hope, if I see you next year, I'll say, she's in, she's in. Like when she comes to Moldova, if not before. She is growing as she is going. You know, and I'm not saying get non-Christians involved in preaching on a Sunday morning. Um, but, but we are saying, come on, come on, join in with what we're doing here. See what God will do. You grow as you go. So I, I promised you a story at the end, which I want to tell you about. Remember the Live Life 123 app, there's a little Facebook group. That's an open sex logo. That's a question mark. But here's, um, here's Edward Kimball. Okay, so here's my story. Just love a coffee. It's 1855. Edward Kimball is a Sunday school teacher 
He's got radar. God, I can't disciple everyone, but I can disciple someone. Would you show me who? So the Lord shows him, a boy in his Sunday school group, that he says, invest in this kid. He works in a shoe shop. So why don't you say to him that once a week you'll go and meet him in the shoe shop over his lunch break and tell him about Jesus? So he goes and speaks to the boy. You up for this? He says, yes. So they meet every week in the shoe shop in the back. And over numerous weeks, he leads this boy to Jesus. That boy, and then he disciples him. That boy ends up going all over the world telling people about Jesus. He had a list of 100 people that he wanted to see saved before he died. And when he died, 96 of those people were in the kingdom of God, and four of them came to faith at his funeral. I'm talking about D.L. Moody. Edward Kimball led D.L. Moody to faith, passed on the baton of faith to him, who passed on the baton of faith, D.L. Moody to, to F.B. Meyer, who passed it on to J. Wilbur Chapman, who passed it on to Billy Sunday. The baton passes and passes. Billy Sunday, decades later, he's preaching in a little town in America called Charlotte. And he preaches the gospel faithfully over many nights, and almost half the people in this community come to faith, like revival. It's amazing. And they understand you've got to pass it on. Like, it's got to reproduce. And so they invite another preacher called Mordecai Ham to come and preach. And Mordecai Ham preaches the gospel over numerous evenings, and they're all a bit disappointed because they were hoping that the other half of the town literally would come to faith, but they don't. Nowhere near as many people do. But one of those people who said yes to Jesus was Billy Graham, who we know went to be with Jesus just a few months ago, but has led millions. They reckon four million people have been led to Christ good fruit through the ministry of Billy Graham. But the story's not about Billy Graham. The story's about Edward Kimball, who said, I can't disciple everyone, but I, I, but I can disciple someone. And so he pours his life into D.L. Moody, and 160 years later, there are millions and millions of people in the kingdom of God now, if that doesn't give you a goosebump, you need to check you're alive. That, like, friends, this is mind-blowing that your little investment in one person could be so significant to see millions and millions of people in the kingdom of God. That is what Paul was talking about in 2 Timothy 2.2. That's what the psalmist was talking about in Psalm 78. Do you get it? Most of you do, not all of you. There's another bit to the story. It's 2012. I'm in North Wales celebrating the 50th anniversary of a crusader camp. I was told it's a crusader camp, not an urban saints camp. That's fair enough. It was a hot day in Wales, which I know already makes some of you think this is a made-up story, but it's really true. <laughs> 120 people packed into a sweaty marquee. Kids that are at that camp, people who were at that camp 50 years ago. I'm the closing speaker. I tell the story about how faith explodes from generation to generation, from Edward Kimball to Billy Graham. But just before I get up, a guy gets up called Joe Jones never met him before. Joe tells us how he became a Christian at camp many years earlier. He talks about how the fact he went home and spoke to his youth leader. Now, his youth leader was in the marquee that day. So he literally points. I'm sitting in the front row where you are, Stuart. He points to the back, and he goes, I went and I spoke to my youth leader, John Mercer, and I said to John, John, I've become a follower of Jesus. And John said to me, that's brilliant, Joe. What are you going to do with the rest of your life? He said, I knew. He said, I am going to Africa, and I'm going to plant hundreds and hundreds of churches across Africa. So John Mercer didn't say, 
Can you not just be a fireman or something? It'll be easier. He said, that is great, Joe. He said, so I'm going to invest in you. I'm going to train you. I'm going to develop you. I'm going to disciple you so that you can do what God's called you to do. So Joe pauses and he looks at us and he goes, and so John Mercer met me four times a week. Four times a week, twice in the Crusader group, twice outside of it. And then he pauses again and then he says, my wife and I have just returned from 35 years of planting hundreds and hundreds of churches across Africa. But the grace of God, of course, but because John Mercer said, I can't disciple everyone, but I can disciple someone, and I will pour my life into this kid. I'll find just an hour a week, or maybe a bit more, to cheer him on, whatever happens. And 35 years later, hundreds and hundreds of churches across Africa. Is that good? I've got most of you, but not all of you. So, now, so, then, so then I get up. I'm nearly done. Don't worry, I'm conscious of the time. I get up, and I tell the story from Edward Kimball to Billy Graham. And at the end of the meeting, John Mercer walks down the line. I know John, big smile on his face. And he said to me, Matt, you'll never know, you'll never believe who led me to Christ, how I became a Christian. I said, I don't know. He said, Billy Graham. John Mercer was led to Christ by Billy Graham. Are you starting to see, my friends, what is happening here? That 160 years ago, Edward Kimball pours his life into D.L. Moody, and 160 years later, Billy Graham has seen millions of people come to Christ. Joe Jones has planted hundreds and hundreds of churches across Africa. Youth for Christ, which was established by Billy Graham, is in every continent in the world, reaching millions and millions of young people for Jesus. And those are just three streams. Three streams from one person saying, I can't disciple everyone, but I will disciple someone. I will pour my life into someone and believe that there will be great fruit. Great fruit. That's great fruit, not grapefruit, just to be really clear. <laughs> so I have two words as I finish and pray for you, and then you give great feedback. I have two words for you, and it's been great to spend this time with you. God's been here, hasn't he? My heart's burning. I don't know if you are, but my heart is burning. And my two words are simply this, friends. Come on. Come on. You can do this. You must do this. Let's pray. Jesus, you said in Acts 1.8 that we will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us and we will be your witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And I just pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would fill every single person here afresh with your spirit. I pray that courage and boldness will rise up right now. I pray that, Lord, we won't be able to walk by anymore. I pray, Lord, that our hearts will break for those in our families and our workplaces who don't know you. I pray that you would stir something in us, Lord, that you would say, Lord, give me souls, give me souls, give me souls. I pray we would see people differently. I pray 
that we would speak to people differently. I pray that we would embrace the ministry of interruption. I pray for a boldness to come upon us. I pray for a radical upheaval of our diaries. And I pray, Lord, for fruit. That Jesus, if you, if you don't come in the next 10 years, if you're not coming for another 100 years, I pray that this room would birth millions and millions of people. Lord, this room, just this room alone, would birth millions and millions. The fruit, the family of God, would grow so much, Lord. We just, we just agree together. Anything is possible with you, Lord. We lift the lid. We say anything is possible. We just declare that the churches in Tunbridge are too small. We just declare, Lord, that our thinking has been too small. And we pray, God, we pray for a massive family of God, generation after generation. Lord, do it, Lord, we pray. We know it's your heart's desire. We come in brokenness and weakness, and yet you choose us. So, Lord, we say to heaven, come on, heaven. Come on to us and through us, we pray. And everyone agreed and said? Amen, amen, amen. amen. God bless you. Thank you for coming tonight.